Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Our next lesson from God's Word continues right through John chapter 12. We're going to pick it up at verse 12. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, devices, or follow along on the screen behind me. This section of God's Word in John 12 is the account in John's Gospel of Palm Sunday, which we celebrate today. This is going to serve as the basis for our sermon lesson this morning. This is John chapter 12 beginning at verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after seeing Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, The crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is the gospel of your Lord. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the early 1900s, the transatlantic shipping industry was taking off. Pre-World War One, the European and Mediterranean economy was booming and this budding new industry was making it happen. Everybody, people, passengers, and goods, everyone wanted to make that trip across the Atlantic Ocean and back again, but it was a very competitive industry. Did you know that at that time, there was really only four shipping companies or or shipping lines that were making it happen? After all, who could afford to build a ship of that size, maintain it, and keep it booked? There was two German shipping lines and, well, there was two English shipping lines. The two English companies were the Canard Line and the White Star Line. Now, probably many of you history buffs recognize at least one of those names, if not both. The White Star Line, well, boasted the star of that fleet, the Titanic. The Titanic was their starship, and it was meant to get 
people across. If you don't know anything about the Titanic, you know this about it, that it was to attract things in a big way, people in a big way. It was the biggest ship that was built at its time, and it was meant to attract big money. It was meant to attract kings and queens with its first-rate entertainment, its fine dining, its gymnasiums, its pools, and of course, the four-story tall grand staircase that was in the middle of it. And it worked. Anyone who had money paid to be on that. And, and how cool was it to do that for the very first, the maiden voyage across the Atlantic? Now, this posed a problem for the Canard Line. The White Star Line's Titanic threatened their passenger economy because, well, all they had was a ship called the Carpathia, the RMS Carpathia, and, well, it didn't measure up. Didn't measure up to the Titanic because it was older. It had been around for a while, and yes, it made money, but it made money as being the, the immigrant's ship. It, it was affordable and, and for working class. Yes, there was meals served on it, but it wasn't fine dining. And yes, there was room to stay on it, but the quarters were often cramped. But what the Carpathia didn't have in beauty, well, it had in reliability. It had made many voyages across the Atlantic and back, and it had a very experienced crew. Perhaps there's a lesson for all of us with the tale of these two ships. It's not so much about what's on the outside, but what's going to get you to your final destination. Because you know how the story goes. On April 12th, 1912, both ships, the Titanic and the Carpathia, were there at port and they set out one extraordinary, one very ordinary, but you know how the story ends. It doesn't really matter what looks like on the outside as long as you get to your final destination. And after all, that, that's true. If you and I were, were given a choice, there's not one person here this morning or, or listening to this or watching online that wouldn't choose to be on the Titanic. Every one of us, given the choice in hindsight, would be on the Carpathia, right? And yet, while I stand up in front of you and, and very confidently admit to you that in hindsight, that's the choice that I would have made, I'm not sure that I would have made that choice ahead of time. All things considered, standing there at the port, looking at these two ships, you tell me which one I get to pick? Well, I'm, I'm going to pick the gymnasiums and the pool. I'm going to pick the comfort and the convenience and the fine dining over, well, the cramped space. I'm going to pick new versus old. As much as I'd, I'd like to think that I'm going to put reliability over beauty, I'm not so sure I would. And perhaps there's where we can take the, the lesson from these two ships as a metaphor for life. 
We'd all like to believe that, that we, we know it doesn't matter what's on the outside, but it, it's what's on the inside and, and what's going to get you to your final destination. That's what counts. That's what matters, right? And yet more often than not, the choices that we make in life reveal that the opposite is, is in fact true. We care very, very much about what we look like on the outside, what the outside world sees about us, how we look, how we come across to the people around us, the world around us. I mean, you could call this the symptom of many, many different things, maybe pride, maybe arrogance, maybe just sin. But for a second, let, let's, let's give it a name. Let's, let's call it a monster or the outward ogre. No, not outward in the fact that we are caring about things outside of us, but we care what we look like on the outside, what people see about us. I mean, maybe for the younger people, this, this outward ogre rears its ugly head when you open up your phone and you look and you wonder, why don't I have more followers, more likes? And while older people maybe laugh, it's the same thing, only asked a different way. That outward ogre wonders, when am I going to get recognized for the work that I do at my job? We all care very, very much about what people see about us, what, what's on the outside. When are people going to finally recognize me for, for me and see me. And so we make choices. We make choices that are directly to make ourselves, our status, our respect grow outwardly. And comparatively, we think very, very little about the ultimate destination of what's inside. Can I apply this, this, this idea of this outward ogre that, that's inside of each of us? Can I, can I apply it to three areas in our life? The way that we look, the, the things that we have, and, and also the things we do. Just real quick, what I want to talk about are our bodies, our money, and our time. Because you think about this, the, the world has a very strong message about the way that we're supposed to look, the way we're supposed to present ourselves, the way that we're supposed to dress. And there's a strong cultural narrative that outward beauty matters more than inner beauty. And we might say, no, of course, it's inside what counts, but hey, make a good first impression. And yet, what does God's word have to say? Well, Christ Jesus talking about you as his baptized sons, as his baptized daughters, says that Christ has presented you to himself as radiant. That's who you are, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Talking, talking specifically to women in Proverbs 31, charm is deceptive and, and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Well, that's applied to just women the idea of that passage and this next one, men and women alike can, can learn from. First Peter chapter three, 
Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Rather, your beauty should be that of your inner self, which is of great worth in the sight of God. So how do the choices that you make, the choices that you make in terms of physicality and sexuality, in terms of the way that you present yourself, how do those choices affect the ultimate destination of what's inside, of your soul? The outward ogre rears its head in the way we look, but also in the things we have. You know there are are standards of living that our society tells us. And, And if we don't go by what the standards of living are for our society, we have our own. We have our own standards of of how we want to live or how we want to be perceived that we live. And you and I both know that to attain and maintain a standard of living, you need money. But what sets the standard for, for how we use that? It isn't our preferences and, and it isn't our culture. It's our God. Our God talks in 500 verses, fewer than 500 verses about prayer. He talks in 500 verses in scripture about faith. Did you know that it is four times that it's 2000 verses in scripture that God talks about money? And the reason why is because he says this in one verse that you can't serve two things. You can't serve money and your use of it and also God. It's one or the other. I wanna read one passage to you from 1 Timothy 6. Paul writes this. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world and we're going to take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So think about that. Choices that we make with the way we work, the earnings that we have from work, how we spend and and how we save. What standard of living does that maintain before our society? And what standard does that maintain in our heart before our Savior? The outward ogre rears its head in, in terms of how we look, in, in terms of what we have, but also in terms of what we do, perhaps m- most strongly. We want to be perceived as, as people in the world who, who do these kind of things. And so the way that we spend our time, our free time, our hobby time, and our family time it becomes sacred. If anybody dares questions or, or comments on how we spend our time, the outward ogre raises its ugly head and says, you can't tell me how to spend my time. You can't tell me what to do. I determine that for myself. And all along, what, what does God's word says? It says, seek first my kingdom and, and my righteousness and, and everything else will be given to you as well. It's a comment from our savior on priorities. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 21, a person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. So how does the way 
we spend our time and our energy and the goals and the achievements we pursue, the time that we spend with our family and, and our friends and on hobbies and free time, how do those outward things ultimately affect the direction of our soul? We named it. We named it kind of cheesy, maybe cute, so that it helped us explain it. We called it the, the outward ogre. We named it that to explain it, but not to excuse it. Because the reality is, that's you. And that's me. Call it arrogance, call it pride, call it our ego. It's, it's sin when, when you and I work to have such a squeaky clean image that we present to our world that, that we fail to, to consider and think about the ultimate destination of our hearts. We work so, so hard to present a, a polished brand before the world, and you don't need to be on social media or the internet to do that. No, long before that, we work to present an ideal image of ourselves in terms of what we do, how we look, and what we have before the world. And we do that, and what does that do to what's inside? Oftentimes, as we, as we sail through life concerned with what's on the outside, we begin to drift through life, not noticing that, well, we knock up against some of life's greatest, biggest, and potentially most harmful icebergs beneath us. Did you know the Titanic was warned no less than six times about the trouble that was heading their way? at least six times they were told that they were traveling into waters in which it was not safe due to the dangerous icebergs that were there. Six times. In the section of God's word that we're looking at this morning, it's Passover time. It's the time where, where Jerusalem's population would explode. It was normally about 30,000. Some say that it would get to be as much as five times that. 150,000 or more people would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. What we read before was that during this occasion, that the crowd that was around Jesus, it, it grew and it grew and it grew. Why? Because they saw what Jesus did to Lazarus, raised him from the dead. The Pharisees even recognized that this was a problem, that the whole world has gone after him. But do you know why? Do you know why they were all flocking out to Jesus? It's because to many, what Jesus presented, what Jesus offered, what Jesus said and did, at least on the outside, was very appealing. To Jews who were living in and around Jerusalem, they wanted what Jesus gave. They were under the thumb of Roman rule and they wanted freedom from that. They wanted freedom from the, from the brutal and the oppressive taxation. They wanted a bread king. They wanted someone who was going to give what Jesus gave. Man, he gave life. Man, he gave sight. Man, he, you raised a guy from the dead. And sometimes he gave away free meals. That's why they shouted what they did. 
As Jesus came into Jerusalem, look what the crowd said on Palm Sunday. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. People were shouting Hosanna because their long-awaited king, he had come. Everything looked good on the outside. But what they wanted and, and what Jesus was offering were two different things. They didn't realize the direction that they were heading, and that's evident because just a few days later, when, when they realized that this Jesus wasn't going to give them the political freedom, wasn't going to match their, their personal preferences, well, this crowd shouted, crucify him. And the same crowd that praised him mocked him. He could save others. He could save a blind man, a dead man. Look at this. He can't even save himself. But there's where we see the hidden beauty of Palm Sunday hidden, that is, at least to those who are, who are only looking at the outside. Because you know what happens. You know who this Jesus is. He came, and he came as a king, yes, but in a strange twist of, of irony, it was not the king that they were looking for. He came riding in humbly, not in the apparel of a king. He came riding in on a donkey, not on a white stallion. He came looking very, very ordinary. But you and I both know that he was an extraordinary king. And we praise God. We praise God that it doesn't matter what a ship or, or what a savior looks like on the outside. What matters very, very much is is about the ultimate destination. And that's all that Jesus cared about was your ultimate destination. And that's why he came on Palm Sunday. He came so that he might destroy death, defeat the devil, sink sin. And yes, here's a vivid picture, obliterate the outward ogre that's inside of all of us because we needed help. We needed a savior. If I can mix the metaphor of the, of the, of the ships and us, we had no choice because of the outward bent and, and the selfish care that we have for, for looking good on the outside, we had no choice but to board the Titanic. And because of that, we had no choice but to be drifting helplessly in icy waters. But we needed a Savior's help. And see, your king comes. It was on April 14th. 1912, that a gentleman who is, who is wrapping up his shift on the radio, a gentleman by the name of Harold Cottom, decided that before he went to bed, just minutes after midnight, he'd turn on the radio one more time. He turned on the radio, and what Harold heard was a distress call from the Titanic that they needed immediate assistance. They needed urgent help. Harold Cottom was the radio man aboard the Carpathia, and he was one, the one, 
the only radio man of all the ships in the surrounding area that responded to the call. He, he ran up to the top deck and he, and he told the people there that, that he heard this call and they needed help. But they laughed at him. They said, the unsinkable Titanic is, is not going under on its maiden voyage. But Harold didn't stop there. He ran to his captain's quarters, actually busted in and told him that this urgent cry for help was coming. And the captain did something about it. Captain Arthur Rodham got out of his bed and gave the order that they were gonna stop everything else going on on the ship and all the energy, all the things, all the manpower was gonna go into turning that ship around as fast as they could and heading back to the Titanic. He ordered that extra men were to go up on the lookout and, and look down at great risk to themselves at the icy waters to help navigate through that ice field so that they could go and help those who were there. And several hours later, it was only the Carpathia that arrived just after the Titanic went under. And it was Carpathia that rescued all of the people that would survive, all 700 and five people who survived were because the Carpathia came. And what a picture of our savior on Palm Sunday. Someone who came for us. Someone who came for us when, when no one else would and no one else could. Someone who navigated the icy waters of life, avoiding every last iceberg of sin, didn't touch one of them. Something we could never do on our own someone who came and there in the icy waters of death dove in on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday pulled us out so that we might have life and have it through him. That's your savior. That's your king. See, he comes for you. He comes and he directs all his energy, all his attention so that he might save you and me. And it changes everything. It changes everything about our life. We shout Hosanna. We shout Hosanna. Blessed is he who, who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know what that word means? Hosanna means save us or we are saved. And so while the crowd shouted it on that first Palm Sunday, not understanding the full implications of their words, or maybe what they were being saved from. By God's grace, you and I do understand that. And we shout Hosanna, the truest song ever sung because we're saved. We shout their next song, the hymn of praise that comes, comes from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because knowing that we're saved by Christ because of what he did and, and not from ourselves, the joy of, of having life in him, of, of getting rescued, our lives saved, well, it results in shouts of praise and joy for him. And it takes over on higher life. Nothing else is, is ever the same again. Can you imagine what life was like for those who were rescued from the Titanic and the disaster there by the Carpathia? the way they looked at life with, with a new lease on thing, with a renewed zeal to live with joy for all that they had. And so it is for us. Your king comes. See, when he comes, he gives you salvation. He gives you joy. 
And he gives you motivation and, and inspiration to take all of the things that we have, all of the things that are concrete, that are maybe superficial or, or on the outside, and we give them for him, our bodies, all of our material gifts, our time and our energy, it, it's spent on him. No longer do we live for ourselves, but like Galatians 2.20 says, I live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our entire life is one song, one shout of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, maybe, maybe we don't sing that and shout that all the time. But that's the tone of our lives. Just like Mary. Mary did something that was outwardly very embarrassing. It was undignified. If it was done in present day and, and someone was there with a phone and took a video and, and posted it or sent it out, there would be comments that were unflattering, unfortunately. In fact, there was a friend there, who, a friend, who did see what Mary did and they responded with, with an idea that, that didn't understand or respect what was going on. Outwardly, it, it didn't make sense, but Mary didn't care because inwardly, there was a quiet strength and confidence and what she had from the Lord. We read the story earlier. It's the story of a feast being thrown in Jesus' honor just, just days before his death. It's at the home of, of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary steps in and she takes an expensive bottle of perfume worth a year's wages. And what does she do? she dumps it out. She takes her hair and wipes it. Even if that was culturally normal to do in our day and age, we wouldn't do that. No one would take something worth a year's worth of wages and give you a shampoo and massage. It, you just wouldn't use it that way. Outwardly, it makes no sense. And yet inwardly, Mary knew the direction of her life. She knew why she was headed where she was. It was because of her savior. And her savior responded accordingly. Earlier in worship, I asked you to think about what it means when Jesus replies with these words. He said, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. What does Jesus mean when he responds this way? doesn't have anything to do with the poor. Yes, he's using it as an illustration for the moment. And yes, God's word elsewhere has lots to say about how the Christian should care for the disenfranchised and those who have not. But what he's talking about here is a matter of the heart, what's inside. He's talking about priorities, that it, it's not about what's on the outside. It's about what's on the inside. It's about faith. It's about faith 
that looks to Christ for who he is. See your king. Friends, see your king come and and give you faith as a gift. See your king come and the message that he proclaims to you, that he is the prince of peace. And now all is right between you and God. Therefore, nothing matters. Nothing on the outside matters because what's on the inside, your relationship with God has been taken care of in him. See your king comes and he changes everything. Because while you see your king come, hear him say to you, you are my beloved. Amen.